Hey gang, welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast where we reboot your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher. Last week's Spotify poll and Q&A results are in, and most of you seem to have changed your eating habits in the last three years. And I'm curious, why'd you change? Drop me an email and let me know, redhillsrancher at gmail.com. My good friends from the Noble Research Institute have invited me down to Stillwater, Oklahoma in a few weeks to take their Essentials of Regenerative Ranching two-day intensive course. The Stillwater program is August 8th and 9th, but don't worry, if you can't make it to that one, there's four more schools late summer and into the fall. Click the Noble link in the description if you'd like to know more. I've also been invited back out to the Bottom Line Conference in Lakin, Kansas, August 24th and 25th. If you've never been to the Bottom Line Conference, it's a great little meeting out in the heart of the plains. And there's a really awesome community of producers that are genuinely trying to change the way they farm the land. In the past, they've had speakers like Dallas Mount from Ranching for Profit and Mary Jo Ehrman from Farming Without the Bank. This year, they've got Steve Campbell lined up for a couple of breakout sessions and a keynote. I'm excited to go back to Lakin again and see all my friends and maybe even some of you. You can find out more information and a full agenda at bottomlineconference.org or click the link in the description. And I might be saying some more about it in a future episode too. This episode is sponsored by Bobo Links. Bobo Links are an all-natural beef snack from the fine folks at Blue Nest Beef. I love them and I usually have one in my pocket to keep my body fueled during long days at the ranch. They're perfect for snacking on the go. Individually wrapped, Bubble Links have amazing flavor that mostly comes from the natural fermentation process. That's right, no nitrates at all in Bubble Links. If you're looking for a healthy snack that won't slow you down, try Bobo Links by clicking the link in the description. And don't forget to use the code BOBOREBOOT for $10 off your first pack. That's like half off. You try some today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, got a little bit more salt in that beard than the last time I saw you. I know it. That's uh, I don't know if that's wisdom or what's coming out, but <laughs> well, well, let's call it wisdom. Let's just stick with wisdom. How long have you had that thing on your face? I think we were just discussing it the other day, and I've had mine since October 2012, I think. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I hadn't really thought back on it. I would say full beard, probably, oh man, uh, 2000 or somewhere in there, you know, so. You definitely got me beat then, sir. Yeah, yeah, 20 years probably, yeah. Okay. Chin's probably uh, really, really light colored under that thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, uh. Well, welcome to Ranching Reboot, Chad. And um, so you're a Texas Agricultural Land Trust now? That is correct. Tell yeah. me tell me a little bit about that. I, I guess I don't know anything about that. We've got quite a few listeners down in Texas. Yeah. No, Brian, I mean, uh, good. Thanks again for inviting me and always good to catch up and 
kind of as you said in the beginning, I mean, probably the first time we met, my beard was was uh, probably reddish at that time. And now uh, it was very dark. dark. Yeah. <laughs> but no, Texas Agricultural Land Trust, uh, we're an organization built by producers for producers. Uh, we're a little over 15 years years old now, Brian. Uh, we were kind of we were set up by a bunch of ranchers that just looking at what was coming down the pipeline. And we needed an organization, a trusted source to to help build more tools in the toolbox to help empower you know, our uh, fellow producers uh, to keep that legacy and heritage together, right, into the next generation. And so the Texas Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association, Texas Farm Bureau, and Texas Wildlife Association, those three organizations came together. And uh, here in Texas, Brian, those three are our biggest uh, grassroots land owner organizations. Um, so they stood up tall. And we fast forward today, um, you know, we have five board members from each one of those organizations uh, that represent, you know, on our board of made up of producers. So, uh, you know, our big focus, I would say bread and butter is conservation easements um, as that tool. But one of the things that we're always looking for, Brian, is, you know, what are all other alternatives? What are other ecosystem service markets being carbon? you know, water, biodiversity, just thinking outside the box and how do we layer and stack these opportunities um, to help help our help our fellow landowners. You you open up a few little cans of worms there that we can go chase a little bit later. Um, yeah. Carbon and conservation easements. Yeah. Um, let's talk about you, Chad. Yeah. Let's see. I I think I met you probably all the way back in 06 or 07 something like that and you were still working for noble at the time right so right tell, tell me where you're from and how you got to noble right yeah. where'd you grow where'd you grow up and get a passion for agriculture sure. no, no, that's a great question no that's a great question so um if you look on a map of texas and you put a pin right in the dead center it's where i grew up uh, a little bitty town called lone so it's a very very much, Brian, a, a small ranching farming community. Um, and uh, I grew, uh, I graduated the big class of four. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I was the uh, top 25% of the class. Well, congratulations. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, we had, you know, uh, 85 students K through 12, right? So that ranching farming is you know kind of in the dna right and those land stewards is um just kind of where i grew up and what's what's important to me and you start looking across the landscape of you know seeing uh you know elders and stuff that that were mentors that meant so much to you growing up or are you know have passed away and, and just seeing those lands change right and those opportunities and so it's always been in you know in, in me to how can I help, you know, our, our fellow landowners? So I graduated high school, went to Sol Ross State University and kind of far west Texas and Alpine, got a degree in wildlife management, natural resource management, actually started um, working as a wildlife biologist a little bit coming out of grad uh, or as my undergrad and um, quickly kind of hit reality, Brian, and, and you'll appreciate this is just 
kind of working with a lot of wildlife biologists and, and, you know, just the way they looked at things, they were really understood the critter, but didn't understand the habitat and the management, right. in that is, side. Is that because you took more of a wildlife and natural resources approach than an animal science and animal production type approach? Yeah. So I think, you know, that's where I think a lot of biologists background is right. Is, is exactly that point. And so, um, and, you know, and I think backgrounds, right, of where people come from and, you know, raised up, you know, and so just understanding the whole the whole system. And so that's what really happened to me, Brian, is just your point. Um, I kind of quickly is like, I need to go back and get my master's. And I got my master's in animal science uh, range management and that combination because I wanted to to better be rounded and understand how do you really manage these these dynamic ecosystems and um, from from all you know all all angles and so um, got my master's there at Angelo State and uh, finished up there and actually started working for uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service as a range conservationist and worked uh, out of San Angelo and those kind of surrounding counties there and you know, kind of followed the, the NRCS path as a district conservationist in South Texas and went back to Alpine as a team resource leader, kind of a supervisor out in far West Texas. Um, you know, and one of the paths that, that I think is, is, you know, is very fortunate for staff with NRCS is you have different paths of, you know, working with landowners in those field offices or there's kind of a science path. And I was kind of at that point that I really wanted to kind of get back into the science side. And I actually um, took a position as a state range conservationist in Florida. Um, so, right, went from the Chihuahuan Desert to <laughs> Florida in, in July and uh, uh, went from, you know, That's nine a different to, kind of miserable heat. It's a, it's a different place. Right. And so, um, you know, I. I that was the best move um, my whole career, Brian. I mean, hands down. I thought I was a pretty strong and pretty good range conservationist and understood range management and, and all of those things. And I did, you know. And then you go to a different, uh, you know, a different, you know, uh, climate and, and just everything. And, you know, in Florida, one inch elevation is a different plant community, right? And it's just kind of putting all of those those principles and everything that you've learned in, in other ecosystems and, and put it in place and uh, with some great challenges and, and a great opportunities. Um, I think one of the other benefits of just not only that side, Brian, was the understanding of working with people and engagement and how do we bring people along. And one of the challenges that's really unique I think in the Florida challenge is uh, Florida uh, University of Florida is the, you know, the ag uh, based school there in Florida. They had a range program and you could get a range science degree at University of Florida. Um, they cut that program in 1985. Really? It's, it's strange because Florida actually has a lot of cattle in it and not a lot of people know that. Yeah. No. And that was one of the things that really drew me to Florida. I mean, it's it's the seven of the top 15 cattle producers in the nation in Florida. Right. I mean, it's big operations. Um, I learned so much from those guys because their operations are are not just cattle. They're all diversified 
operations of, you know, citrus, turf. I mean, they have lots of different enterprises and they, and they just the way they look at it. Um, but one of those challenges kind of coming back is that range program cutting out or ending in 1985. So you think about, you know, all of our ranchers, all of our NRCS field staff extension, their really only option was animal science, was their ag degree. And so, um, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of natural resources and grazing management and these other, you know, these other aspects that we need to be all well-rounded in all of those aspects. And so it really laid some challenges, you know, of just trying to really having to start from ground zero on, on a lot of areas and, and bring people along. Um, so I really enjoyed my time in Florida for, for many, many reasons. Um, and, and then from Florida, I moved back to Texas um, at Fort Worth at the Regional uh, Technology Support Center. Still for NRCS? Still for NRCS. And I was a, a Grazing Lands Conservation Initiative Coordinator. Um, and that time. That's Brian right. I forgot yeah. you, you and that's were probably business to start Texas grazing lands. Yeah. So that's where some of it probably, you know, I think you and I've met if, you know, maybe once during that period. Um, but that's kind of really when I met your dad and so many others in Kansas and Kansas was one of my main states that was under my responsibility of helping the, the coalition there. So, uh, that was, you know, many, many years ago. Um, and then kind of, Fast forward to that transition was my transition to Noble. And that's a whole nother story in itself, Brian, is uh, to me, that position I mentioned at NRCS was probably the best position in the whole agency. Um, you know, but I was flying to some other state helping, you know, somewhere every week. And uh, I parked at a re remote parking spot south of DFW Airport. And a uh, lady came out of the booth one morning and came out with a hand, with a newspaper and a bottle of water. And, hey, Mr. Ellis, how are you doing this morning? Here's your paper, water, you know, go park on, you know, aisle in. And got back into the booth and the arm goes up and I start driving, you know, to the, to the aisle she mentioned. And it was just aha moment. And I was like, man, how in the world does this lady know my name? You're there way too much if the parking yep. attendant knows your name. Yep. Yep. And so it just sort of this this reality hit, right? And and it was kind of this aspect of, you know, I see this lady more than my wife and kids and and uh uh job is great. I'm I'm loving helping, you know, other folks across the country. Uh, but I really need, you know, I really started trying to assess, assess life, right? And what's important in life and and those things. And uh so at that point, uh, position came open at Noble as a range, a range conservation or you know range consultant, range and pasture consultant. And I was like, you know, this is a great way to get back working, you know, one on one with landowners because I'd been away from, you know, got to do some of that, but was more helping, you know, other consultants and field staff and things of that nature and building tech, you know, technologies and things. Um, and so I put in for that position, started working with Noble and and ended up making that transition to Noble, which was was a great. Right. I get to back um, 
went there to think, Hey, I'm not going to travel as much. I'm going to be right there. And, you know, at that time, you know, it didn't happen that way. Um, I, I think one of the, 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 the fun things about it was right at that time when I went to Noble, um, Bill Buckner, the, the past CEO of Noble had been there maybe four months or six months before I got there. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Hugh Aljo and back and forth and he's like, Hey, let me send you this DVD of our new CEO. And he addressed him, you know, the staff of the direction he wants to take the organization. And I watched that DVD and it was Brian, it was just amazing. It was so empowering to me because it was the first time I'd ever heard anybody articulate really where they wanted to fully take an organization that met my internal mission and vision. Okay. Right. Of, when, when, when was this, Chad? Uh, this would have been in 2012. Okay. About, yeah, about 10, 11, 12 years ago. Um, 2011, probably somewhere in there. It's really weird uh, to think that that was 12 years ago, but go yeah, on. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, visiting, you know, so that was just a great, and I was like sold. I'm like, you know, this is once in a lifetime. Um, I'm, I'm all in. And so... We made that move and, and, uh, you know, quickly I kind of moved to a different role as where we needed as an organization of still got to do a little bit of consulting, but never really got to do what I thought I was going there. Um, originally just really, uh, helped with bill thinking, uh, you know, what are new things that we can build, right. To help, help landowners put soil health on the ground, regenerative agriculture, those pieces. And so, really helped in a lot of the formation of the Soil Health Institute, the Ecosystem Service Market Consortium, uh, really built a great team. I mean, and, and you know, a lot of my old team, which, you know, are, are, are really dear friends of, of Jeff Goodwin and Mariah Johnson. And we sort of built this awesome team that really looked at the issues we face, right, through an economics lens, through, you know, just the uh, ecosystem function and how do we do that how do we put all this together in a business and and stay profitable and and uh, at the same time you know enhancing our our uh, ecosystem and and long-term sustainability of us um, so it was it was a really great time um, probably some of the best times of of my uh, career for sure very cool I and I kind of remember you know, it, it was around that, you know, 2011, 12 time period. Before that, Noble was kind of like restricted about 90 miles outside of Ardmore. Right. Like it, right. Was, it was difficult to get it, get you guys to come up here to Kansas to really help because, you know, there for a while you're like, ah, sorry, you're, you're a little far away. You know, we'll get there if we can, but it's not on our priority list. And it, But then that, you know, like you said, that changed. That yeah. changed in like 11 and 12. and you know, the profile of Noble just kind of continue, just started to really rise then because you guys were getting out to other states and other conferences and other meetings and letting people know what you had to offer. And I thought that was really great. Yeah, it was a great time. And, and that was a big push of mine. And, you know, it made, made sense, I think, for some of the, the, you know, the reasoning, right, from an organizational structure. Uh, Noble's very unique and, and, and a true blessing. Um, 
you know, providing, you know, that guidance and assistance and, and things, you know, how they looked at it from a board perspective was, you know, where, where could we help with put the best resources? And, you know, I think it's just like, like anyone, we sometimes over, overcompensate or put in a box. And that's where that 90 mile radius came about was, Hey, if we can go from 90 miles, it's an hour and a half, two hour drive. We could work with the landowner, you know, uh, on their place and be able to drive back home. And that's how, you know, it was kind of analyzed. I think, you know, even before that, I think they had a little bit more free, you know, free ranging of being able to go. And, and that's where it kind of sucked down to that 90. And now you look at it, you know, and, and the, some of that start was in that, you know, 12, uh, 2012 period where we were able to kind of start breaking and showing those impacts of how we're helping folks, you know, beyond that. And that's really when you and I got to kind of start working together and, uh, yeah, it's great. Okay. So now tell me about your move to Texas Agland Trust. Yeah. For your last couple of years at Noble. I mean, wherever yeah. you want to start. Yeah. No, I mean, so Noble was great. Um, you know, I think what happened and, and really I, you know, it's kind of, you know, you just don't know where life takes you, I guess. And, uh, I think from my wife and I definitely thought Noble was kind of our last move, right. We would, would definitely retire there and, uh, and, you know, probably would still be there. I think what kind of happened is kind of through that, those work, those working relationships and partnerships um, at Noble, you know, I worked with Texas Agland Trust on different projects and things over the years and, and knew, knew Blair Fitzsimmons, who was the founding CEO of, of TALT and many of the board members of Bob McCann and Roel Lopez with Texas A&M and others um, had that relationship. And, um, you know, Blair came to that step of, you know, became a grandmother and had the first grandchild and, you know, had that aha moment herself of, you know, uh, hey, I think I'm going to try this retirement thing and be a grandmother and enjoy that side and not, you know, wake up too, too late in life. And, and uh, I think she, it caught her off guard as well, I think as quickly as that move and the opportunity came up for me and, uh, and it came sooner than I expected. I think Brian, you know, is kind of one of those, you know, one of those things that just lined out. Um, it puts me, I'm about two hours away from my home place and, you know, my folks are well in their eighties. And so that was a big factor, right? It got me closer to home to, to be able to help and, and do things and be, you know, be there for them instead of, you know, four and a half, five hours away at, you know, from Ardmore. And uh, so we just made the made the jump. Um, I will say, and, and and something I don't recommend by any means. I took the position right before COVID and made you know actually made the transition during the COVID. So I don't ever recommend taking over an organization during a pandemic. Just by the way, uh, it's got its own challenges. <laughs> Probably couldn't have seen that one coming. <laughs> so. But uh, no, it's it's been great, um, you know, and you fast forward today where we're where we are at TALT and, and helping folks. When I came to TALT, we had about six or seven projects in the pipeline. Right. And what I mean by projects of 
of families that we were working with on a conservation easement, sort of in our pipeline. And you fast forward today, and we're over 90 in our pipeline in just three years, a little over three years. Very so the end for conservation easements and looking at that and being that need is, is uh, you know, uh, has grown tremendous. Um, and it's been fun trying to, you know, help them and find new ways and put things in place where we can help empower them. Okay. So for those of us that, just explain it in simple terms, what a conservation easement is and isn't. Sure. Yeah. So a conservation easement is an agreement uh, with a land or a easement holder like Texas Ag Land Trust uh, will hold um, like a bundle of rights. Right. And so uh, we're holding really the development rights. So um, so for essence and simple terms, I guess, Brian, is um, we're given the opportunity holding the development rights off of your, you know, off of a ranch or farm, uh, that rancher or farmer still gets to, to keep farming and ranching. Um, and you get the asset of either the donation value or a purchase value of that bundle of right of that development right. And so what it does is it helps empower those families of either from a tax or inheritance, you know, aspect of estate planning. It gives them a tool from that perspective. Um, and then the other side is we think of, a, you know, a lot of situations. I mean, we think of my situation or your situation, Brian, of, of where you could put a conservation easement, have a purchase where someone outside is purchasing that easement. Um, we think of a lot of landowners, right, are, are land rich, cash poor. And it's hard, right, in those transitions. And I think of those those days of of your father, Ted, and you transitioning, of you taking over the operation. You know, that's one option is, right, is the easement. You get that purchase. You could build a, you know, a operational endowment or, or help, you know, uh, uh, you know, one generation help with a little bit of liquidity out of that, that operation, have a retirement, still have um, those assets in that transition for the next generation to take over. So there's lots of, that's the thing that I love about a conservation easement. Um, they all look different, you know, from, from Talt's perspective, uh, they all look different. There's not one that looks the same because we're meeting the goals and objective of that landowner and we develop it, you know, for them. Um, you know, I, I think the one thing I will say is that, you know, just kind of like we can get in on the weeds and carbon markets, right? They're not all the same, oh, right? We'll, we'll get the carbon yeah. markets. <laughs> <laughs> so they're not all the same. And so that's the thing is like, um, you know, it's understanding, you know, the first most important piece is finding the land trust that really fits you and understands you, right? Perpetual is a damn long time. So you better have that trust and understanding of that land trust. And so, um, you know, that's the, that's the piece. That's the beauty. I mean, we have a key guiding principles, um, at Talt of, you know, we want to keep the freedom to operate. So we'll never dictate what management, we'll never put what management, what you can and can't do on your, you know, on your operation. Um, really what I like to call it, you know, we're really about, um, you know, open space really is how it's set up. It's keeping that open space is that ecosystem service for, you know, for society to see, you know, no more buildings and things of that nature. 
but you still have the ability to to uh, and ways to put in that easement of future, you know, a house or cabins and things of that. So you still can build from that. It just can't be a a uh, you know a Walmart casino or you know a, a neighborhood type of thing. Right. So I. I've never really seriously considered one. I've never really, sure. never really thought about one. My dad's, he can be kind of negative about them sometimes. And yeah. okay. That's fair because there are some of them, like some of the early conservation yep. easements that were thrown around. You couldn't go move a fence. You couldn't build another foot of yep. electric fence. You couldn't put other water tanks in the ground. You couldn't build a new building at your headquarters. And those seem like overly restrictive to me. Um, and when you like the concept of selling off specific types of development rights, and I guess we're kind of dancing around it. Like these, these conservation easements can be very specific or they can be fairly broad. Am I, am I correct in that? Yeah. 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 And they can be like 100% tailored for the operation. It's not like, um, I'll just call somebody out nature conservancy. It's not like they've got a one size fits all conservation easement that they're trying to push. Maybe they do. I don't know, but it's, it's not a one size fits all approach. It's got to be a customized approach for what fits the needs of that, of that operation. And in some extent here in Kansas, we have uh, severed minerals. So you can uh -huh. have one surface owner owning the surface and another owner right. owning the minerals. Yep. And same, can... same here in Texas. Uh -huh. Okay. So this is just kind of like, it's kind of like that, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a good way to look at it. Yes. Um, you know, I kind of back up. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like I mentioned, not all conservation easements are the same, right? And some of those land trusts are very restrictive in the way they write them and develop them, right? To, to your, to your dad's point of not, you know, being reluctant of not being a good fit, right? So that tool's probably not the right one. Um, and so we can tailor them and do tailor them. Um, one of the key pieces, right, of, of TALT's guiding principles is we won't get into putting those management perspectives, right? So we want to we, we want to keep that freedom to operate. So you don't ever have to call us and say, hey, I'm putting in a fence or I'm moving a fence or I need to put a water water line here to put a water trough, right? For your because that's your operation. That's that's what you're doing on a daily basis. That's not our business and we don't need to tell you you don't have to. I mean we have a lot of landowners, you know, do call us just saying, you know, just to to cover and we're like, hey, that's great. <laughs> you know, you need help and you know, we'll, we'll help you or whatever, um, from that, that end. But, uh, but you do have other land trusts that are, so those are the things you just have to really kind of think through. And, and again, who's that right partner, who's going to be able to, to work with you. And that's what I look at it, right. Is that it is a partnership. It's a family, right. I, we've helped 45, we've helped 45 families, um, you know, put conservation easements, to help their goals and objective, Brian. But I look at them as the Talt family, as a generals too, right? So we're going to be partnering forever and, and trying to help them. And uh, so that's the that's the exciting this exciting part. And I think from a landowner's perspective, is it's nice to know that you have someone else there fighting for you, right? I think that's a lot of times, and 
you know, you and I've talked about this for, you know, different, different things over the years where sometimes you just feel like you're alone fighting for whatever may happen. Maybe it's a power line or pipeline coming through and it's imminent domain type of situation or, you know, something, something wild, you know, whatever it may be. Um, you know, those are going to be areas where you have, you know, a partner with you. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And I, I could see how, you know, having a conservation easement in places could help. Like I, I'm thinking of yeah. Paul and Gabe Brown, what they're dealing with up in North Dakota. Like there's a company that wants to build a, like a two foot diameter pipeline to move liquid carbon dioxide across their ranch. And they're having all sorts of problems because, you know, the company's trying to say, well, if you don't want to work with us, we'll just eminent domain you. Right. You know, you got to give us an easement to where we can put this pipeline anywhere we want on your property and you can't say anything about it. We get to come back whenever we want and you can't tell us what to do. And, you know, there's a big difference between negotiating with a local power company on where they want to put a power line and drive across the pasture and yeah. deal with a company that's got federal backing across state lines that's probably got, you know, some of those people making the laws are heavily invested in the company. Yeah. And it, it just seems like there's not a whole lot of folks looking out for the little guy anymore. Yeah, no, those are great points. I mean, one of the pieces and one of our kind of advocacy points that talked, you know, from a state level, Brian is, uh, you know, trying, you know, I'm going to kind of back up, you know, conservation easement in Texas doesn't hinder eminent domain, right? It doesn't stop it. It does. Uh, and that's where we're trying to get language, you know, and in, in state policy of to add that more assurance, right? When we think about the conservation values of that property and the, the values to society um, to kind of help uh, at least be uh, at last resort type language where those pipelines can only go through from the last resort and, and be that. So, you know, that's the piece is that we can help and be part of that situation. You know, there's areas where like if you go from a purchased conservation easement where maybe NRCS um, or someone like that is paying for that uh, conservation value of that, um, a lot of times when we have the federal and things of that nature, you know, it does help or some state funding. Sometimes some states uh, have language. And again, every state's a little different in, in laws and regulations, but will help from that eminent domain as well. So there, there are advantages in a, in a lot of those cases. Um, but again, even if we don't have that, just having some extra you know, source and help by you to, to help mitigate those uh, bulldozing, as, as you said, and, and uh, you know, uh, in, in multiple ways can definitely help. Um, so that's, I mean, that's what I like about the easements, right? Is there's, it's another tool. It's not the right tool for every family or every situation and every time. And and that, that's what I want to make clear. It's not a one size fits all and it, everybody should have it, right? It's, it's, it's definitely a, a operation, operation, family to family and the timing of it um, definitely helps. Yeah. I, I'm hung up on, you keep yep. you, you said farmers and ranchers can use these to keep do you know can use these conservation easements as tools, and I I, I get the overall big picture 
goals of a conservation easement. And I start wondering, like, are we talking like pecan farmers or are we talking, you know, 10,000 acre soybean and corn farms? Because it doesn't seem like there'd be a whole lot of conservation easement on a monocrop commodity field. It, 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 it seems like, okay, we're going to pay you to keep this permanently destroyed and keep it in this production system. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So I would say, I always say is, is uh, even if we take our worst monoculture, I mean, you know, whatever the scenario may be, uh, would you rather that be a pavement and what value ecosystem service values is pavement providing or, you know, I, I mean, I, I could almost make an argument for pavement over monocrop, but I, I totally get yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if, if the choice is pave it over and put a Walmart or a Dollar General there or let it be corn and soybeans, let's let it be corn and soybeans. Yeah. Fine. Because and, we don't need more Dollar Generals in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think, too, right, is that that we're also looking at some of those operations, right, as today and a snapshot of today and maybe in the past, but. You know, there's still the aspect of the future of a monoculture, right? That that family, that decision may change to something else, right? And, and then start improving. And we find other incentives to improve. So I think that's, you know, I think that's one of the ways to look at it is, uh, you know, what can we provide today to, to, to get us to this point? And then what else can we keep providing to, to make, uh, you know, positive change? Um, in those systems. Have you had anybody that's signed a conservation easement come back a year or two or three later or more and need a clarification or need a tweak or want to change? Yeah. So we haven't had any, um, you know, major changes or anything of that nature. We have had, uh, I, I guess we've worked on uh, one amendment which was a, a change this last year where they actually added some more acreage onto a current easement that they had. So we just sort of amended that easement and added some acres that they had, you know, some additional acres that they wanted to add into that conservation easement. You know, one of the things too is, is uh, you know, we try to build them with the flexibility, right? Not be, as you mentioned, so specific. So that I think helps in some of those, uh, you know, projects as we move forward. And then the other piece, Brian, that, that, you know, I can't stress enough is that, you know, it's not, it's not finished, right. As, as we close that conservation easement, TALT's not part of it. You know, one of the components is we have a monitoring requirement from the IRS to come out and do a site visit, make sure the Walmarts and, you know, whatnot is not developed and uh, you know through those it's just good conversations of man how's uh, you know how's everything going where's this you know where's your operation going what are you thinking about doing next and understanding that and then also helping to to start meeting and understanding and building that relationship with the next generation and and so those things really help us where it mitigates a lot of the the oh shit moments if you want to look at it that way and um and we're just kind of work through those as we go um you know those will happen i mean there's no doubt that we don't know what's ahead of us 
you know, 75 years from now or 100 years or 50 or, you know, um, and, and we'll work through those amendments and, and those changes as we need with those landowners. I don't, I just had the thought that huh? it's been a while since we've had major, major breakthroughs that have really advanced animal husbandry and, and grazing of livestock. It's like everything that we think we're discovering or learning that's new. Somebody knew that hundreds of years ago and we probably wrote a book about it. Everything yeah. we, every time we think we've discovered something novel about stockmanship, it turns out there's a tribe in Africa that's been doing it forever. Like yeah. Yeah. we're, we're not inventing it. It doesn't seem like we're inventing anything new anymore. We're just finding better old ways to do the new stuff. I think it's well said. Well said. So I wanted to, you, you mentioned the word stewardship several times earlier and the context you measure, mentioned it in, I kind of wanted to, I wanted to clarify, what do you mean when you say good stewardship? Yeah, I think land stewardship, right? I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, looking at, you know, our, the whole system, right? From our soils, our plants, our animals, and, you know, trying to improve those um, and a systems and a holistic approach, right? Not trying to uh, uh, take one component and maximize one piece and let the rest of it fall. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's, that's exciting. I think on, on many points, right? And, you know, I think we think of a land, land stewardship too, is it's, uh, you know, you start thinking of some of the, the writings of Aldo Leopold, right, around land stewardship. And that's kind of, you know, where I look at it and fall too. And those were, you know, written 80 plus years ago. And they weren't necessarily novel just from him, as your point. Um, you know, he, there's other writings even way before that, that, that talk about things but we seem to always you know that history shows us we, we we always want to try to think that we can improve things better and, and do things you know outside the norm and and it we're slow learners i think uh short-term sure. memory short-term memory <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely all right you ready to talk about carbon let's do it i think that grass-fed beef will be a byproduct of the carbon sequestration industry. I think, yeah. I mean, I think things, when we look at uh, how things are moving, right, Brian, and, and uh, these kind of insetting or scope three, kind of, I hate to get way too in the weeds. Um, but already in the, in the weeds. Yeah, <laughs> you know, in this process of, you know, of within the value chain, right, of, of corporations and in the food sector, I, I think we'll, we'll kind of move into and opportunities, as you mentioned, into that space. I think when we think about carbon and, well, let's not just, I, I throw other things too. We think about uh, ecosystem service, you know, services as a whole and the ecosystem uh, process Right. And, and the functionality of ecosystems, it's very, very complex. Right. And, and, you know, I think at times, again, the short term memory and the 
paralysis of us is <laughs> trying to make things better. We make things more complicated. I just, I was just thinking about like, there's a graphic that I've seen several times about how much oxygen the corn belt produces in June, June and July, you know, how much CO2 that it, that it pulls down. And I, I have this, I kind of have this memory of this like really a, a map of the U S and there's this big green blob kind of over the I States. I'm like, and I think, okay, that's great. That's great that we're, you know, that there's that much plant respiration taking place. What about the other eight months of the year where that ground is bare? Right. I mean, most of it probably is. What are we doing the other eight months of the ground while it's bare? Let's talk about the whole year long cycle in that field rather than just looking at it for a couple of months and saying, oh, look how good it is for right now when six months later it's bare soil and we're piling up cars on the interstate because the dust is so bad. Big picture, holistic, and it's got to be seen on more than just a one-year time scale to, to really make sense. And us as humans, you know, we're flawed. Like our, our temporal sense is just all messed up. You know, yeah. some people can't even tell you, you know, what five minutes looks like or what happened last year, what they had for breakfast yesterday. But as land managers, we've got to be in tune with the rhythms and the yearly and seasonal pulses of the land. It's just, it's difficult to me, you know, when I hear companies like primarily based up in the I States talking about carbon, like, oh, we're going to go, we're going to sell you carbon storage on our cornfields. No, you're not. Because as soon as you till that up, it's gone. Yeah. I mean, your, your carbon, yeah. Okay. Two tons an acre carbon storage in Iowa. Big deal. You till it up in the fall and it all goes back to the atmosphere. So let's talk about the whole year-long cycle instead of just one little tiny, tiny bit. No, I think those are all great points. And I think one of the great points, right, and, and I think one of the things that, and it doesn't take us long or, or many years, or, you know, to think of back where 100% of those conversations were strictly on farming, right, in those farm operations. And, you know, uh, the grazing operations weren't even, I mean, we weren't even brought up as a as a solution or even part of or even even if we weren't a solution to even think about, well, what else can it provide? We've and, always been a fringe minority anyway. Yeah. yeah. And so it's nice to, to finally um, be able to be part of that and, and be able to say, look, right, we are providing, you know, a, a living root in there 365 days. Uh, you know, and all of the benefits of, you know, just opposite of what you're saying and uh, all the great things. And it, it's, uh, I've never seen it like this before. I mean, really where we are today, we're still not where we need to be in these conversations and even uh, highlights of the importance of our grazing, uh, grazing lands to the security of our nation. Um, but I think people are starting to be enlightened and, and learning a little bit more. And we have to, we have to, you know, put it in another gear and, and get the information out there. It's, it's an uphill battle though. I think. Yeah. There was a, I think it was on TikTok last night. I saw a video and kind of went through how McDonald's is 
pretty much one of the largest single buyers of beef mm-hmm. in the country, maybe even in the world. And the same goes for, you know, the buns, the pickles, the lettuce, the tomatoes, and right. the onions, right? They want it all to taste the same everywhere. And when you have that much purchasing power, you get what you want. And the rest of the market gets to follow your lead. And, you know, we can talk about grass-fed beef. We can talk about saving the world with local food. It's going to be a long time before that gets the double-digit percentages. Before, you know, the big multinational food companies, the big multinational packers, before they're going to start feeling a sting, we've got a very long road. But I think it's it starts with everybody. It has to start at home with a small change in the eating habit. And, you know, people say, oh, those, you know, grassroots efforts never work. Yeah, they do. They just take a lot longer and you don't see them working overnight. If you want something to work right now, you need top-down management that doesn't care. If you want something to work for a long period of time, that decision needs to come from the ground up and be supported by the people on the ground. And by the time the people at the top are kind of aware there's a change, there's way too much support at on the ground level for those at the top to ignore it. And what I'm saying is consumers were at the bottom and your purchasing dollar has power, whether you believe it or not. And every time somebody makes a choice to drive past McDonald's and go to the local burger joint, that's a positive choice on your community. It, it's also a positive choice to go buy from a local rancher and yeah. go buy your onions and tomatoes from local farmers. And I get that's not possible all year, but when it's possible, I think people should be doing it. And you know, it, we're not going to take away McDonald's profits. It's not going to happen. But over a long enough period of time, these big companies are smart enough. They'll see the pattern. They'll see the pattern. They'll see where the consumer dollars are flowing and they'll want to get in on it. It's only a matter of time. And I think we have to, we have to keep fighting the fight on the ground and, and talking about what's wrong with the food system, talking about what's wrong with their land management and getting more people aware about where their food comes from and getting people to make a more educated choice about where their food comes from. I mean, it, I think you've heard me say it once or twice, something like shake the hand that feeds you. Yeah. No, I think you're spot on. I mean, I, I think, you know, and I think, you know, uh, I, I think it comes back to that human aspect. We want instantaneous, you know, no matter where we are of, of uh, satisfaction or whatever. And, and I think, I mean, the grassroots is, can work and will work, right? We just have to stay hold to it and and not get frustrated frustrated and move on to the next way, right? And um, and not follow 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 into that side, but uh, you know. And I think too, there's this other dynamic too, Brian, as as we kind of look at a holistically across the landscape, right? And and uh, you know, we look at a few things I think one that that concerns me and then I think there's some positives in this too kind of so kind of bear with me as I kind of lay this out um 
you know, one of the things, uh, the issues here in Texas, right, and I'll just use Texas, and, and Texas isn't the only issue. It's even, you know, in your home state as well. But we're losing almost a thousand acres a day to development of working lands, right? Thousand acres a day, three hundred sixty-five thousand acres a year. Um, we're gaining fourteen hundred people moving to Texas daily, right? So we start thinking of that population increase and things. How many, that, how many acres did you say you're losing? It's, it's pushing a thousand acres a day. A day. Right. Wow. It's, it's, it's astonishing. Right. And that's where and it that, comes back. That's yeah. just the houses. Yeah. That's just houses. That's yeah, exactly. If you throw in invasive trees, do you know how many? acres? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know the number. I, I have a hard enough time understanding this thousand acres. Brian. I, I, I just brought that up because, you know, the figure, because Oklahoma loves to keep track of that. And I think yeah. to like 810 acres a year to invasive trees. No. So, I mean, so these are these challenges, right? And these dilemmas and these aspects, right? And so, you know, in Texas, pushing a thousand acres, we're gaining 1400 people daily moving to the state daily, right? So you just have these, this nexus and, and, you know, how do we, how do we come to this? But at the same time, what we're seeing, right, is uh, we're seeing a lot of these, I would say, new landowners that are buying property for the first time. They're kind of new to the land, landowners, right? They grew up in a, you know, uh, farming, ranching, or they grew up in a city and, and maybe multi-generation, um, you know, uh, aspects away from the farm or ranch. And what they're able to do, Brian, is be able to look at this opportunity of buying property but their education and understanding how to manage that property is at a new, you know, they're, they're at a beginning stage. And so that makes it tough, right? When we start thinking of all of our, you know, uh, grassroots of education and helping them, uh, you know, we got to start from kind of ground zero. And, and that's not a bad thing because there's less paradigm shifts and things that we have to, to break through of, you know, that, that other side of multi-generation, right? Of this, how, Dad did it. Grandfather did it um, and that side. And then what we're also seeing, Brian, is a lot of what I call back to the land type landowner, right? As someone that, you know, grew up in a rule, maybe, you know, uh, went had a career, they're retiring and coming back home. And again, just trying to help them. So I think there's and I think we have to keep that in mind, too. Um, back to your point, as we kind of start moving this, you know, forward in these these systems and this land stewardship and things of that nature of, you know, how we got to meet people where they are and help them kind of go through this journey of being better tomorrow than they are today. A lot to unpack there. You know, there's, there's the coastal exodus happening for, you said 14,000 every day from California. 1400 people 1400. moving. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, that's like my county every two days. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, exactly. And so, you know, and everybody comes from different backgrounds or understanding and, you know, um, which is all great. Right. But uh, there's a lot to, you know, a lot to keep, get everybody kind of on the same page to, to move forward. 
it, it's a culture thing. And, you know, when, when that many people come, I, I, I guess it's a percentage thing. When, when you have a large influx of new people to an area, it can't help but shift the culture, like in a short term and in the sure. long term. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think maybe right. there's some, yeah. maybe there's, there's some Californians that could see what's... Go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right, right? It's not all bad, right? There's there's good in it to it all, right? And it's just getting to a common ground and understanding, you know? And I think what happens, right, is, is uh, you know, and, and we see this further and further disconnected um, to agriculture and land stewardship, right? And in my mind, right, just because it's generations... Um, that may not understand fully where their food comes from, back to your point, right? And how do we, and this is part of, I mean, that's the whole thing, right? And we're kind of coming back to this point of how do we educate? Who do we educating to? Um, you know, some of the things that we're working towards hard with at TALT, Brian, is kind of telling the story differently, right? And trying to really talk about the outcomes and the benefits that these land stewards are providing to the public, right? It's the public benefits. And so like kind of pull, kind of stay with me here for a second. And, you know, we have helped 43 families empowered those families of putting conservation easements um, on 200 and uh, roughly about 280,000 acres, right? Across the state. So from the panhandle to, you know, far west Texas, south Texas, uh, East Texas, et cetera, right? All over, kind of scattered across the state, kind of 280,000 acres, you know? And I, I kind of say that those those times we used to, you know, I would say, uh, used to tout how many acres we had under easement, right? And to me, those days are done, right? We have to talk about what what's the impact of those acres providing, right? And so if we take those, you know, roughly 45 families, those land stewards on a yearly basis, how many water bottles do you think from their conservation and land stewardship could they fill in a year? Just your traditional water bottle. Any idea? They're probably a lot. A lot. Yeah, that's a that's a one. That's a good number. <laughs> <laughs> Take a guess. Take a wild guess, Brian. You're smart. Uh it's got to be in the millions because we're talking like if yep. we're talking water, you know, yep. an acre foot is 325,000 gallons. Yep. You know, if we're just talking, you know, a foot of rain on one acre, yeah, that's a couple truckloads of bottles of water. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 550 billion water bottles. Okay. I, I wasn't even going to take a yeah. step at that. Man. Yeah. So 550 billion, right? And so, like, that's a thing where, you know, having this conversation and educating to understand what you're doing on your place and the benefit, right, of, of just that the land stewardship and the good grazing practices and things you are providing of just clean, clean water and water quality and quantity that you're providing, right, to, to the community as a whole, people beyond the fence line, right, as I always kind of kind of talk about it. And so that's a way that we can get this aspect of them understanding that, you know, having Brian Alexander out there grazing 
maybe provides bet more benefits than another Walmart or another uh, Dollar General, like you mentioned, right? And and it's just trying to understand and connect them to something that they may use on a daily basis. And that's just one example that we try to really hone into um, to bring science and, and understanding and, and kind of bridge this uh, consumers and folks that are, you know, further disconnected of the importance of our land stewardship across the state. Okay. Is there a minimum size that a minimum acreage that you'd be interested in doing an easement on? Yeah. And what's yeah. the process like if somebody wanted to wanted to explore a conservation easement in Texas? Yeah, no, great question. So we usually say, and it's a gray area, Brian, around 140 acres um, is kind of minimum. And, and that's just the economic side is just the economics to make it work and, and the benefits there is usually there. But we do hold easements that are uh, smaller than that, you know, 60, 80 acres. Um, and it, so it all depends. Our process, uh, Brian, how that's set up and, and kind of like I mentioned, we're, um, you know, organization made up of producers themselves on the board. So uh, we'll take an application from someone that's interested in that application. We develop a memo of kind of understanding their goals and objective, where the property is, the layout, et cetera. And then that goes to our land committee made up of our board members who are landowners. And they just it's sort of that that uh, gut check to make sure that it's meeting still our mission and vision as a nonprofit. Um, and they kind of give us that final green light uh, to move forward. So the process is that in Texas, um, you know, anybody can call or reach us at Texas Agland Trust and we'll help them and kind of have these discussions as you and I are having, kind of understand, you know, what's motivating them, understand the benefits. Um, we'll a lot of times come out to to their property and, and just meet them face to face to have those conversations and let them know, um, send them you know, information packets and kind of walk through these these things. You know, the thing is, right, a conservation easement is a real estate transaction, right? Because there's that aspect of, of that severed right. Just as you mentioned of oil and gas, there's a severed right of kind of the development that's sitting there. And, um, you know, with it being a uh, real estate transaction, there there's expenses to them, just as you would sell your house, right? You got you know, uh, you know, surveys and, and, and policy work and, and closing costs and all of those, these type of things, right? And so they're, they're not cheap to do. Um, and that's where we work and try to find funding and work with others to help pay for those due diligence costs as we can um, and those options with, with landowners. So we kind of walk through all of those pieces with them. You know, the interesting thing, Brian, and you ask of, you know, what's the time, you know, how long does it take us to close an easement, you know, maybe a, a part of the question, right? And, you know, by the time someone calls us and we start working with them and kind of laying out the options and them to fully understand the conservation easement and them kind of work through the process um, of understanding, you know, where do they want building envelopes? Do they want partitions? Do they want to be able to divide the ranch in the future? Uh, you know, all of those things, we we kind of work with them. And there's a lot of that thinking process that you haven't thought of. And, 
you know, usually by the time we have that first engagement to the time we close is probably two and a half years um, on average. I mean, some, you know, some we have the, the, the conversation and we close within six or eight months, um, depending if it's a donated easement. But you start adding layers of purchased easements, right? It's there's a another party that's paying. They're going to, you know, want certain things. And so it's just, you know, the process. And, and uh, so I always kind of tell people, you know, it's better to us to have the conversation sooner than later to to get you to kind of start thinking, uh, you know, is, is it the right thing or not? And, and understand the tool uh, and its capabilities fully. And more importantly, right. And, and I think, I know you believe the same thing is, is find other, other uh, landowners that have conservation easements. And that's the other thing we can do is, you know, send you to, to other, you know, other producers that have conservation easements and, and talk to them uh, and hear the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And and we don't have to be in the conversation, you know. Uh, friends of our, you know, mutual friends that we hold the easement on is Emery Birdwell and Deborah Clark. You know, great. I mean, couldn't ask for two better people. And they're a great resource to to visit with and ask, you know, why did they do it? Well, you know, what, what did they like? What did they not like? And those type of things. I'll have to remember to ask that, ask him that. I can ever get them on the podcast. I've, I've, <laughs> I've talked to Deborah several times. I mean, because yeah. like I'm, I don't, I know Emery, but yeah. I'm not even going to try to schedule anything with Emery. I know if I can get it scheduled with Deborah, she'll make sure he's there. <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, and they, I, I know they won't mind me sharing this, but, but, uh, you know, we had this thing, kind of this process, like I was mentioning, and we went out to the ranch and stayed the night, talked with, with uh, Emery and, and Deborah and, and uh, you know, kind of went through the, you know, one end to the other end and, you know, a- answered all the questions and got them thinking through and asking more questions. Right. I mean, that's the thing. You don't know what you don't know. So you start kind of, un- you know, unwoving the, this aspect. And so we got up the next morning and, and Emery was just so chipper and he's like, you know, Chad, that was the, that was the best night's sleep I've had in 30 years. Because he said, I know I made the decision that we're going to move forward on this and I don't have to worry about this ranch anymore. And the weight is off my shoulders. And that that really said a lot to me, Brian, of someone I respect so much from memory of kind of understanding that. And then you kind of really start thinking about that. You know, in his, his mind, right, and they said, you know, even if, someone, one of our children decides, hey, this isn't the right thing for them and they want to sell the ranch in the future, at least this ranch is going to stay whole and all the blood, sweat and tears that those two put in that ranch and the regenerative agriculture and all the, everything they've done, it's at least going to go to someone that's going to love the place as well, right? And do the same things. And it's going to, they, they have that assurance that TALP's going to help in that process of whoever runs that ranch in the future, if that's one of their children or someone else. And that was a big lift and weight off of both of them. And, uh, you know, we're just, you know, I'm just happy to, to, to be able to help them in that and uh, that journey and be partner, you know, partner with them and make sure that we see, you know, their wishes uh, upheld uh, forever. Okay. Not sure, not sure where to go with this one. 
but I talk a lot about the the triumvirate between management, ownership, and labor. That all three legs, you know, whether, whether it's a triangular, it's a you know three legged stool, a three legged pot, whatever. All three legs have to be on mission, on vision, right? They got to, everybody's got to be bought in and share that mission and vision of what the place is going to look like and how we're going to make it look like that. Okay. You know, so that's ownership and then that's management and the actual, actual execution on the ground comes down to the labor layer. Yep. Now, me being self-employed, I work for a total lunatic, but on the other hand, it's easy to get stuff done because Ownership doesn't have to have a meeting with management and then management doesn't have to have a meeting with labor. Like I just talk myself into doing a stupid idea and I go do it. So adding in another entity like Texas Ag Land Trust into that decision-making process. I, I, I mean, I could see some red flags, but then also if management is very familiar with the conservation easement, and has no trouble working within the bounds of it, then yeah. it should never be an issue. Right. Yeah, I think, yeah, a couple of things, right? And it comes back to our guiding principles is, you know, we're not going to dictate your management or, you know, so in some sense, we don't have to be part of your, you know, we don't have to be a, a four-legged stool in your process or, or be part of one of your legs um, on the management side, right? And, you know, we can be, you know, we're there to be a resource or to help, you know, if we can be a, someone to kind of think through that process. The only reason why we would be in that decision, if it was, you know, a crazy idea of, uh, you know, plowing up this prairie and putting something else in, right. And kind of taking away those conservation values is the only reason. But if it was just, Hey, I want to, you know, change fence here. Or I want to graze differently here. Or I want to, you know, do X from your operation that you're already doing, then, then, uh, you know, we support you in that. I want to build a cabin so I can Airbnb it out and share the beauty of the ranch with other people and make a few dollars on the side. Yeah. So if that's the, if that's your kind of crazy idea, then we would need to be in that discussion and not saying you can't do that. It's just be able to say, Oh, Hey, you know, uh, from your conservation easement, what we put together, this is where you can build that cabin and do that. This is where you, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, well, this is where you can build it. And this is how much traffic is allowed down there. And this is right. how the road can right. be and where you can put the road. And yep. And a lot of things, that's where we try to go through and work through that on the front end, right? As we're building that easement and uh, that side. And I think it's, again, it's building that that partnership where we have that that ability to, to have those dialogues to help one. Yeah, we're not there to, to stop an idea. Right. And that, and that's a difference. Right. And I think in the partnership is, uh, you know, we're not there to to be a heavy handed regulation. Of, no matter what I did, Brian comes to us. We're always going to say no and find a reason to say no. You know, we're we're there to. Yeah, this makes sense. Let's how are we going to work through it to, to keep this um, to meet within the boundaries of that agreement? More like a, it's not going to be an automatic. No, it's going to be well let's figure out how to do this and stay within the bounds of your agreement. Exactly. 100%. I dig it. Yeah. I, I've wanted to ask you for the last, I don't know, half hour. 
what are some of your red flags that you'd see in a conservation easement? But I guess you're the guy writing them, so you're the one putting the flags. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, I think this is the things, right? Um, that was a great question. Um, you know, I, I think I, let's put it this way, okay? Maybe not specifically for Texas Agland Trust. Yeah. But in a broader sense, yeah. what are some things that the listeners? Right. throw up a red flag about when they hear conservation easement. Yeah, no. So I think, I think some of the, the, the couple of key things I would ask, right. If, if I'm a, if I'm a landowner looking at a conservation easement, there's a few questions and I'll kind of break it down. I think Brian is once you're working with that land trust, right. Whoever it may be some key questions that I would want to know that to me is your first number one, decision is who are you going to partner with right because this dance is forever right and, and so you want to really make sure that they and you said it well right that they see and understand what you're doing kind of through your events and, and understand it so that's a key one and through that i think one of the key questions is to understand what is the long-term sustainability of that as a business or an organization are they going to be around five years from now or 50 years from now? And some of those we don't know, but we can understand, you know, the way they operate, um, you know, from a business side, you know, ask some of those key questions, right? Of just to give you assurance from that side, understand who their board is, understand, you know, some of that, that due diligence on your side. And once you feel comfortable and you're kind of made that decision, then it's understanding, you know, some of the key pieces that we've talked about, you know, through this conversation are, are they going to, you know, uh, am I going to be able to keep the freedom to operate? Are they going to get in the weeds of what I can and can't do? I think those are, those are really key principles, you know, that you need to understand, um, you know, those private property rights, what are those, what are, what is that organization's guiding principles, right? And, and understanding um, from those key pieces. Okay. I, I was sitting here wondering, okay, we, we started talking about conservation easement holders. And mm -hmm. so what happens if that entity that, that holds those conservation apps. easement, what happens if they go away? What happens if they dissolve? Is that easement, is, does that function like a severed mineral right and that's a saleable asset that they can sell then to somebody else to get out of you know, bankruptcy or whatever problem they're having? On the other hand, it's hard to see an outfit like Tald or Nature Conservancy or some of these other ones that are out there offering conservation easements. It's hard to see a mechanism to where they would go away within a couple of months. Right. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So, you know, one of the things and we have it and it's, we're very clear on a couple of things in our language um, of talk. I'm going to talk from talk because not, not everyone follows how we do it. So we have language in that conservation easement that say, if I had, if we held the conservation easement on your place, Brian, and talked, you know, fell through from a business or, you know, went away, um, that conservation easement could be transferred and we would work with you of helping you 
and you make help make the decision of what other land trust it would go to. Okay, so you still have that ability sitting in your side of saying, no, I don't want A, but I really like B, right? And B is a better fit. And that would transfer there. This is one of the key pieces that I think is important. And, and we have business principles and things set up in our governance within the organization that there is a, a stewardship fee that everyone pays, which is a one-time fee that pays for us to monitor that easement forever. Okay. Okay. And that fee will trans will stays with with the land. So not only will that conservation easement move to another land trust in this situation, so will that stewardship fee. Okay. Right. So what happens, and, and you know, unfortunately, we've seen it across the country. I, I can't think of anyone in Texas, but there's areas where a land trust financially starts you know, struggling, right? And keeping that nonprofit going. And then they start, right? Moving into some of these other, you know, other funds that they have. And then all of a sudden there is your stewardship dollars could be gone, right? So I think those are some key questions when I say understand their business and their structure of the business is some of that side. Um, we're very clear and, and, you know, have things where that helps you from a landowner and that investment is is there in place you know one of the other structures we have um, in place brian is we have texas act land trust you know our, our nonprofit there but we also hold a separate and uh entity which is our foundation and our foundation is out there you know is developing an endowment um, and that's one thing that we're working towards now is trying to build an endowment called the Forever Texas Fund and that foundation endowment that will then help um, be an operational fund back to TALT long term. So providing that extra security and um, assurance back to the landowner that we will be there financially there forever. Um, so those are some other things I think that are important um, to understand. Okay. I, I, I want to clarify something in the last couple of minutes. You've, you've used the phrase land trust, a land trust. You've said that several times and oh. there's nothing wrong with it. I just want to point out that there's a company named land trust. Yeah. And they don't have anything to do oh. with conservation easements. They're just trying to connect hunters with private landowners. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I do work a little bit with land trust. They're yep. a fantastic outfit, but I just, I wanted to throw that out there for the listeners for a little bit of clarity. Um, no, you're exactly. Yeah. And it, it was also misrepresented on, on uh Cam Haynes and Joe Rogan podcast a week or two ago, Cam Haynes oh. was talking about it and he was mentioning, like he was talking about land trust using that phrase and in, in some of the sort of same context. Yeah. And I just, I just, wanted to make sure that was that was that was clear not not picking on you chad i'm not picking on you at all no no we we, we all need to be clear clear for sure okay. um, carbon what do yes. you have i know we'll just we'll i'll quit tripping on my words one of these days um Carbon contracts. I know there's there's a bunch of different carbon companies. I'm working with grassroots. 
Um, so real quick, I know you've been around for a long time and I know you and I have had many in-depth conversations in hallways at conferences about soil carbon and ecosystem goods and services. I guess without really calling out any companies, what are, what would you look for in a carbon contract and what would you run away from in a carbon contract? Yeah. No, that's a great. So one of the pieces at Talt, Brian, um, you know, it's kind of like I said, our, our business models around conservation easements, but it's also this side, right, of ecosystem service markets and building what I kind of call like additive conservation, right? How do we keep adding value and, 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 and stacking that value? Um, and so one of the things that we wanted to really be is a trusted hub in this area. And so, you know, we have these conversations with landowners call us that may not be interested in a conservation easement, just interested in a carbon, you know, contract. And us sort of a, as a nonprofit, we have no, you know, no skin in the game, right? I mean, we're just here to help and kind of ask those questions. And so one of the things that we put together, and unfortunately, you know, what we see is uh, when the opportunities arise, a lot of times we see bad actors, right, that jump into it, that see it for a quick buck, that aren't in it to think of, you know, Brian Alexander or Chad Ellis as producers and, and you know, helping us. And, you know, they're in it for all the wrong reasons. And so one of the things uh, we put together uh, with, the, with the group of partners um, here in Texas was a 101 uh, carbon um kind of publication, Soil Carbon 101, like uh, determining if soil carbon storage markets are right for you. Um, and this key publication, you know, we had, uh, you know, some producers like the Grazing Land Coalition here in Texas. Uh, we had some lawyers sitting in the room as well, right, to kind of what are key areas and what are key questions, because you don't know what you don't know. Um, and so those are the things of kind of round uh, commitment, compensation, costs, measurement, restrictions, and legal considerations, right? So it's kind of some key things. I always kind of push people to those. There's some other new, uh, I would say, publications out there now, too, that help. Uh, the King Ranch Institute's put out a really good one, if you've seen that one as well. Um, but... I think when we start going down those contracts, Brian, I think one is I always provide people that they, you know, we always want to shy away from legal counsel and things of that nature just because of the cost. But, but if we're getting into these contracts, you you want to have that legal side, right, to, to make sure just as you would a oil and gas, right, severed right. You're, you're not going to, you know, do that and, you know, negotiate those on your own without legal advice. And this is the same. Um, try to break down to those key pieces. Uh, and I got a lot of pet peeves, so I don't know where to start, Brian. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think, you know, depending on that contract, right? And they're all different and every group's different in the way they, they're structured. Um, if I don't reach that modeled number of amount of carbon in the ground by whatever year, uh, who, who's, who's liable for that? Do I have to pay back or 
is that on the developer? Some of those are, are key, right? Because um, no matter how good a uh, land steward I am and the, and the practices and things I'm doing and moving forward, if we're in a the worst five-year drought, you know, on history, um, you know, are, are we going to reach those goals, right? And so I think those are some key things. I think the cost, who's responsible for those costs and those measurement costs, um, verification um, are, are really key ones. Um, understand those restrictions too, Brian. I think, you know, can I sell or lease lands that are enrolled? Um, if I sell the land, you know, does that transfer over to the next, uh, you know, owner or do I have to pay back? What are those things? I mean, there's a, we can go through a long, long, long laundry list of pieces and I'm going to get down to probably the thing that I feel is my biggest pet peeve and where I've seen some, you know, I'd say fellow friends, right. Or, uh, get hurt and, they sign a contract and the contract set up that you don't own your data anymore, right? Your data is transferred to whoever the contract's under. And some of those contracts I've seen, Brian, that developer then owns your data and then owns any future other ecosystem service markets that may arise. And you aren't eligible for those, Ooh. right? Those are bad. <laughs> That's not what you want, right? It's, and those were, you know, and again, I think we've done enough pushback that those probably aren't out there as much anymore, or I haven't seen as many, but I would say a few years ago, um, you know, I saw quite a few of those that were something that you just don't understand or, you know, the landowner didn't fully understand. They didn't get that legal advice to understand. And I really say that on anything, right, of these markets or anything else, be very careful on the data, right? You should always own your data. You have the rights to your data. You should negotiate that, you know, if that company uses your data for other widgets or other things that they may build, because, you know, a lot of these companies are kind of twofold, right? They're, they're maybe technology companies and then also, you know, providing a carbon market that if they build another widget over here on the other side of the business, you should still get your fair share because your data helped develop that. Um, and so things of that nature to, to really, you know, be, be strong towards um, and understand, you know, I really feel that the data is another stackable money instrument, you know, money stream to producers kind of come back to our early, early part of our conversation of farmers and farmers and farming side and the cropping side. There's been a lot of data, a lot of, you know, uh, collection and things like on that side forever. And it's more ingrained. And, you know, with that, there's more data available for scientists to develop models and other things. Right. But when we kind of come back to our grazing side of the scenario, as we talked about, right, we've sort of been this redheaded stepchild and we don't have some of these things. Um, that data is not as rich. But so for a company building something that maybe benefit you and I as our as operators, um, those tools, um, which is fine, but we should negotiate and understand the, the you know, a win-win situation and understand and not being taken advantage of and, and, you know, taking, you know, someone taking that data and us not getting anything back for it. All great points. 
all great points. So I um I really don't have anything else, Chad. You got anything? Well, you got anything you want to ask me? Yeah, no, I just I would love to know kind of um you know where do you where do you see your operation in the next few years? Oh, you would ask that question today. Um, so I guess I'll go ahead and break break the news here and tell everybody what's on my mind. Um, I'm looking at an opportunity in about 90 days to pretty much get out of my cows. Uh, I'm probably going to be selling off almost all of my cows in the next 90 to 120 days and moving back towards a custom grazing operation. Um, not giving up on beef business. I'm mm -hmm. partnering with partnering with a neighbor, been running cattle with them together for two years. Um, not, nothing's, nothing's official yet. We've just talked about it. Um, but I think, uh, I think he's going to end up buying some of my younger stock and some of my calves to put in his beef program. And as we go forward, um, I may retain ownership. And some of those, uh, but the goal is I'll be doing most of the work in the operation in the summer, grazing a lot of, a lot of his cows and some of mine all summer. And then the winter, we're going to destock the ranch and send them all down to his place. Cause he's got several thousand acres, uh, of old tillage of old farm ground, old wheat pasture, wheat ground, um, that he's turning back into grass. So what it's a lot easier to feed down there in the winter a lot easier to, to keep animals alive down there in the winter. Um, yeah. so that, that's what we're moving towards. And, you know, I'm not giving up on anything. I'm just making a pivot because cooperation is a lot better than competition. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually look at it, Brian, you're still, you're just looking at it from that systems approach, right? And your, your land is being part of the system of your neighbors and, to the reasons you're saying, right? It's just a different, the cooperation, you know, is kind of that part of that system. I mean, if I had the ranch north of me, yeah, with some bot, with a lot more bottom ground, yeah. it'd be a different story. Sure. But the kind of grass that I grow on the ranch, the kind of, you know, terrain that I have, it's just awful thin eating for cows in the winter. Right. It's, it's real thin eating. And, yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't lose any last winter. Didn't lose any of the winter before, but man, it's it's awful rough watching them get hungry there in uh, late <laughs> April and May before the grass shows up. So we're we're going to adjust strategy a little bit and um, and still kind of continue on the same basic path of you know trying to help build those those uh, smaller frame, more efficient, more fertile animals that can get by on less. Awesome. One last question I have for you and just kind of all your conversations and your thoughts, uh, you know, is maybe a question and, and a conversation or, uh, beyond carbon, right? Is start thinking of, you know, from a, maybe a biodiversity, right? And, and uh, your thoughts around a biodiversity credit and what that would mean for you as an operator. What does that really mean? How would that how would that need to be developed to make sense for you? 
you're not the first person that's wanted to have a conversation with me about biodiversity credits. You're just the first one that's wanted to do it while the record button's been pushed. <laughs> um, I probably feel like biodiversity credits, like everybody thought about carbon credits 20 years ago. Yeah. Like you're smoking mirrors. Um, but on the other hand, they've solved a lot of challenges in regard to carbon measuring and carbon monitoring. I mean, yeah, you know, we still got to go out and take a three foot soil core to see what's really down there. Um, so the question becomes, how do you measure? And then how do you compare that against an index? You don't, yeah. you measure what's here yep. versus what should be here or what could be here. Or do we take an average of the neighbors and index that against what you have. So then it becomes a question of, okay, are we going to be looking for biomass? Are we going to look, be looking for different species and their, and their total biomass broken down by species? And okay. The quote comes to mind. There's no use hitting bullseyes. If you're aiming at the wrong target, right? What's the target? Like, that's the question is, what is the target? No. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. I, I think, I, you know, I guess I go back to this is that uh, I think there's opportunities, right? And beyond carbon of other ecosystem service of goods, you know, that we're providing as ranchers um, in the future. And I think, but it all needs to be done correctly, right? Of To your point of having the right target, the right the right things. I think technology is coming to cheapen up, right? When we think of a trans transaction of those costs and being able to measure and monitor um, are, are getting much easier and quicker than us having to go out there manually and do everything um, or at least lower that amount. Um, I, I don't know. I'm excited about the potential um, and, and where I really think is this biodiversity is helps us maybe overall of kind of a, even our, our conversation is understanding as a as a society as a whole of this private land stewardship public benefits. Um, you know, I take Texas, for example, you take Far East Texas of maybe Nacogdoches, Brian, um, where, it, you know, 60 inch rainfall, right? It's high, it has high potential for carbon. Um, and then you take something out and, uh, out towards Ozona far west, you know, in, in West Texas with, you know, maybe 15 inch rainfall and those soils, right. It, it's, it has less potential and it's, you know, from, from, you know, the DNA of the ranch of the soils and the climate and everything. But we look at it from a biodiversity. I mean, it's, you know, a very, very important ecosystem for lots of wildlife and pollinators and things of that nature, more so than maybe Far East Texas. Um, and, and so then that gives us opportunities of all of our land managers of opportunities that, uh, you know, how, do, how can we stack these opportunities with them? And to me, when we get to that point, that's when it starts making sense and incentivizing. You know, it's kind of like they say, uh, conservation without competition compensation is only a conversation, right? Ooh, I like uh, that. In some sense, I would say, I always say that. And then I always say that, you know, 
historically, it's been actually exploitation, right? And instead of a, a conversation, because, you know, we're, we're doing all these goods and benefits uh, as ranchers and farmers and land stewards and providing that and being exploited, right? Uh, and not being paid for those. Um, and so I think, you know, in the future, I'm hoping to see that, you know, um, not that we have to get paid for everything, but it'd be nice, sure, be nice to get paid for some of that land stewardship and be able to invest back in to more conservation and more more things in, in our operations as a whole. And uh, I'm excited about, you know, what the future um, has in store with this, but I think it's at the same time, we're going to need, you know, good minds like yourself and, and others at the table and producers at the table to kind of help, help drive what, what it's, uh, what these systems need to be. Okay. I'm just, I'm hung up on biodiversity credits and, and how to measure it. Yeah. And do we look at keystone species? Okay. So beaver? Sure. Well, what are you going to get when your creeks and rivers are totally infested with beaver? Will you get river otters back? Is that the next level? What's the next level past a river otter? Um, you know, and then grassland birds are another one. Okay. You know, you've got, you know, your, your sparrows, your dick thistles, your small birds that eat, eat bugs and grasshoppers. And then kind of moving up the chain, you've got quail which you know everybody loves to go hunt they're even kind of delicious to eat yeah um you've got to have some pretty good habitat you know you've got to have good habitat before you're gonna have quail on the ranch right umbrella species yeah so then the next one that you get after quail is going to be prairie chicken in my case lessers right okay but that's not the end of it because if you have enough lessers kit foxes will show up okay so what's after that I don't know. I mean, right. I, right. No, I mean, that's I, I got to the beaver phase and the kit fox phase. And that's, that's where I'm at. <laughs> no, I, I think, I mean, this is a point, right. And it comes back to our very beginning is, uh, you know, sometimes we make the, well, ecological process is, is messy, right. And it's complicated. And this being part of that, right. Of the, of the conversation. And I think sometimes we over complicate things and, uh, you know, I think the index is the right way. I mean, the getting into the details of how you develop this biodiversity index um, is the question, right? And where you're in. And, uh, and I, you know, I don't Figuring know out how to index it. Yep. And then measuring it at a cost effective manner. Yep. Where the cost of measurement doesn't eat up the revenue generated by the credit. Correct. Like that's where we were for carbon for yeah. a long time like when voluntary carbon credits were you know four five eight dollars yeah. nobody gets interested but man all of a sudden they get up to 20 yeah starts and making now, sense and, and now we can start making some financial sense to pay the measurement cost out of that and still have money left over to pay landowners like now we're getting somewhere i mean right. if carbon price actually got where what carbon price is going high like i yeah. think I think most of the companies out there right now are offering around $20 a ton. Right. If they're quoting a ton, if not, if you're, if your carbon company that wants a carbon contract is quoting you a per acre payment, leave. Yeah. Like, go to somebody that will quote you a per ton payment. Right. And I think right now they're like, 
they're all kind of like in the $20 a ton range. I think I've seen 22 and I've seen 17 on the bottom end. We're talking about per acre per year here. I mean, we're talking about $5. $5 is a lot of money when you talk about. Oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. if carbon price goes up, and this, this is why I say it's a carbon gold rush. Okay. In the Inflation Reduction Act, there's, uh, there's a section, 45Q. Like, everybody go look this up. 45Q section of the Inflation Reduction Act. It lays out tax credits for carbon capture. The top end caps at $145 a ton tax credit for carbon capture. And I'll granted, this is a mechanical, like that's a mechanical capture scheme injecting it into rocks 5,000 feet down. That's the floor. $145 a ton is what companies get a write off. So that price that would be an offer for $20 of soil carbon. Will it be 145? Yeah, probably not. Will it be somewhere between 20 and 145? I hope so. Sure. I mean, I'd be happy with 40. I'd be happy with $40 a ton. That would just that would make my day. <laughs> it would make my whole year, in fact. No, I mean that's and that's and that's the point, right? We gotta find these incentives to to help, right? Be in the black instead of the red and and start helping us and getting that and and um I'm more excited today where, you know, we're not there, but it's definitely the first time I've ever felt that we're stepping in the right direction to what you're saying. And uh, we just got to keep, keep pushing. And, and uh, you know, I, I think the key to this, right, is what I always say is we need usable science, right, which is the end user part of the process. And that's us as producers need to be in those rooms and helping understand move the needle in the in these markets too because a lot of times i think some of the failures is really good ideas but they didn't have us in the room to understand right and then these good ideas got to you trying to implement on the ranch and it was just like ah this doesn't work and these are you know the five obvious reasons why it doesn't work and they're like what i didn't know you know and so that's the thing right is 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 uh we and it comes back to your you know, you, you said it earlier of, of uh, cooperation and, and collaboration and, and things of that nature uh, for us to find these solutions. Yep. yep. Well, good stuff, Chad. Hey, man, I appreciate catching up with you. And and uh, thanks. Thanks so much for uh, just sitting down and, and uh, talking through some of this together. You know, it, it just occurred to me. I know we're making progress in ag. I know we're moving the right way. And I know that because I've known you for 15 years and every conversation we have is about the future. We, yeah. You and I have not had the same conversation about what's wrong more than once. That's one thing I really like about you is we're, we're, you're one of the guys in the industry that's always trying to move things forward and not stuck in the past. And I've always appreciated that about you, Chad. I appreciate that, man. And uh, that's what I think, you know, that's what I wake up each and every day, you know, is how do we, how do we keep moving it forward? So uh, appreciate all you do as well. So thanks again. All right. Great stuff. And uh, gang, that's it. Enjoy your week. See ya.
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.